Good morning and morning. Welcome to Park Church. We're glad that you're here. I want to echo what Brian and what Christy just said and prayed. Um, we're super glad that you're here. Welcome. If you're new, I want to extend just that special welcome to you again. Um, if you were if you were invited to come, thank you for accepting the invitation and being here. And if you're someone who did the inviting, I want to say to you, thank you for extending that invitation. Um, at the heart of what we believe here at Park Church is that God has done something good and great for this entire world. Uh, and that means that everyone out there, like your neighbor, the people you work with, the people um, who you see at Starbucks, those people deserve to and need to hear this good news of what God has done for them. And when you invite people in, they have a chance to hear that uh, on mornings like today. So thank you for inviting. And if you're here, thank you for accepting the invitation. This is a great time to be inviting someone uh, into a Sunday morning to kind of hear what's going on. Because we're kicking off a new series, and the series is something that will impact every single person who uh, you could possibly invite. It's called Just Face It, Facing the Change That's Facing You. And let's face it, everyone faces change. No matter who you are, you face change. There's something coming. There's some what's next that's facing you. This is sort of... Um, an intentional time to do this series because, sorry kids and sorry teachers, uh, the second half of the year of the summer is coming and we're, you're kind of getting ready in the back of your mind, you're avoiding getting ready for the new school year, right? If you're uh, like someone who is a high school senior or was a high school senior and you're going to college, this is a big time of change for you. There's a big change that's facing you, right? Or if you're going from eighth grade into high school, it's a big change. Or sometimes just from third to fourth or from sixth to seventh, these are big changes. You know, we have a little guy who's going from preschool into full-time kindergarten. It's a big change for him. It's a big change for us, right? As parents, you're watching your kids grow up and go to new uh, schools and have different situations. Um, I can't imagine the time when our guys start going to college. That seems like a change that is going to be all scary for us, um, but that's coming. Change faces us all, and it's not just school-related change, of course. Hopefully, there's something coming. There's some what's next that you're looking forward to, right? Maybe uh, that what's next is a baby, and it's your first baby, and that's like an exciting thing, right? Or maybe you're having a second baby, and that's also exciting, but maybe a little scary, right? Or you're having a third baby, and that's really exciting, but also a little nuts, right? <laughs> um, maybe there are other things coming up, like um, a new job that you're about to start, and you're looking forward to that, right? Maybe you're going back to school to get your master's or to do a different career. Um, maybe you're looking forward to retiring. That's something that's coming up soon, right? Not every change, though, do we look forward to. Some changes we don't look forward to, right? Um, like I said, having that baby, it, uh, it could be um, fun and exciting, but for a lot of people, it's also really, really scary. It's like, ooh, gosh, right? Um, even good changes like that, they could be scary. Other changes we don't look forward to necessarily, um, like losing a relationship, that's really important. Maybe you're kind of going through that change right now, right? Um, the reality of the situation is while some people are looking forward to being married, other people are going through or are looking towards getting divorced, and that's a hard, that's a hard thing to have to endure. Maybe um, there's a relationship that you know that you stand to lose, maybe because that person has gotten ill, 
and there's some new sickness, there's some new thing that's going to happen, and you know that that person is going to be taken from you eventually. That's a, that's a change that no one looks forward to. Maybe there's um, a job that you have now that you know you're not going to have forever, that you're going to lose that job. That's another hard change. Maybe you have to move somewhere that you don't want to move, and you're not looking forward to it. Whatever it is, um, we, all, we all face change. Life doesn't discriminate. There's always something coming. There's always a what's next. There's always a change that's facing us. The question is, the question that we'll ask throughout this series is how will you face it? How will you face the change that's facing you? For some of us, um, we kind of do well with change. We kind of thrive in change. But for most of us, change is a hard... For most of us, the equation of change looks something like this, right? Change equals stress equals bad, right? I wasn't a math major, but I'm pretty sure that's a pretty solid equation, right? Change equals stress equals bad. Even good changes, right? Like getting married. It's a great change, but you have no idea what it's going to be like to live together like that, right? Or having a baby. It's a great thing. Having a second or third, it's, it's awesome. But you don't know what that's going to be like. Anytime you're stepping into the unknown, right, what happens is there are things you don't know. And so there are things that you worry about. There are things that might cause you anxiety. For a lot of people, that turns into stress. And that means that stress and change is bad. And so what do we do? We kind of run from change. Or we fear change. Or we um, act like change isn't actually coming. But it is coming. So how will you face it? How can you prepare for it? Can you prepare for it? How can you face it in a way that you not only um, don't dread it, but you actually come to thrive in it? And what does God have to do with the way that you face change? How can you face change differently because of your faith? And what does your faith give you that if you didn't have faith, you wouldn't have? How can your faith actually grow through facing change so that this isn't the equation. Instead, um, this is the equation. Change gives you an opportunity to trust God in a new way, and that's good. Change gives you the chance to uh, trust in God and have faith in a different sort of way, and you live life differently because of it, and that's good. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed for the rest of the summer. For this morning, though, we're going to really focus just on one thing, and that's preparation for change. What you could do now to make it so that later is different. And here is, here is like the phrase that I want you to kind of like know and remember, all right? What you do now matters for how you will do later. You got that? What you do now matters for how you will do later. I have two friends who just trained and uh, kind of completed um, triathlons, right? If you're a runner, if you do marathons, if you do that sort of thing, you know that what you do now matters for how you will do later, right? Um, and that's kind of obvious that that's sort of the way it works. Um, the problem is, though, we don't quite get that sometimes. Like when we're training for a marathon, we get that, and maybe you have the ability to do that. But in life, we tend to not get that. And here's like an example of that. You're 60 years old, you're laying on the operating table awaiting your triple bypass. All of a sudden it dawns on you, wait a minute, when I was 30, 
maybe eating those cheeseburgers and cheese fries and Cheez-Its and cheese doodles and cheese fondues and cheese plates. I really like cheese, and I, I need to work on that. Um, maybe eating those things wasn't such a good idea. And that's, that's like simple cause and effect, right? What you eat now matters for how you're going to do later. And you're not going to do well if you eat like that. But a lot of times, things aren't even that simple. It's not just about like cause and effect, but it's also like the kind of behaviors, the kind of habits that we learn in the present matter for how we will do in the future. Another case in point from my life. When I was in high school, you could describe my study habits, my work habits, as non-existent. That was one way to put it. Another way is bad. Another way is dangerously uh, atrocious, right? My problem in high school was I was just smart enough, just bright enough, to not have to do anything, really, in order to do just good enough. Do you know what I mean by that? I could get by, like, so like the word homework, for instance. I knew what it meant. It meant doing the work at home. I didn't believe in homework. I did the work, but I did it all at school. So during the class, while the teacher's teaching, I'm doing the homework. In study hall, I'm doing homework. Um, I did it during lunch. I refused to ever bring books home. I wasn't the kind of person, I was just bright enough where I could not study, or I could study like on the way to class, and that would be good enough, where I would do good enough, and that would be good enough. And at the time, it was good enough, right? And I had teachers, I had parents, I had a girlfriend at the time, um, who is now my wife, who said, um, your study habits are not good. They're not going to work when things change. When you get to college, when things get harder, those study habits aren't going to work. And I thought all those people were totally wrong because they don't know how like, resourceful I am. And, how... <laughs> and so I go to college, freshman year. I would say I hovered around a 2.0 GPA. Now, the scale is 0 to 4, right? And so that's half half in academics, again, I'm not a math major, half is not good, right? Um, I failed two courses my freshman year. Uh, it was biology and chem two. I saw what was happening. I saw that I needed to be able to work harder. I knew that change was coming. I knew college was going to get harder. But because I didn't develop the study habits that I needed now, I wasn't able to change on the fly then. What we do now matters for how we will do later. And I bet you have said things like this before to yourself. For instance, once I get married, once I commit to a woman, then I'll stop looking at and noticing other women. Doesn't really work like that, right? Once I have kids, then I'll curb my language. Once I make more money, then I'll give generously, I'll give faithfully. But since this hasn't happened yet, then there's no point in doing that when that is then. The problem is simply knowing what's to come. While it's helpful, it doesn't necessarily correlate into success in what's next when things change. And I know that because there's nothing more embarrassing than taking freshman year Chem 2 when you're a senior with one foot out the door. <laughs> Going to college, getting married, having be, all of that stuff. What you do now matters for what you will do later when things change. And this is not something um, that I've just gleaned from my experience. It's not something even that I've made up per se. Um, a lot of it comes from 
the Bible from the book um, of a man whose name is James. Now, James is an interesting character. There's a good chance that you've never really heard of him. He only has one book in the Bible. He's not like a Paul who wrote a lot, and you've heard of him maybe, and Peter, you've heard. Um, James, he only wrote one book. Uh, his book isn't super popular because it doesn't talk about God. It doesn't talk about Jesus very much, so it's not super popular. The thing with James, though, is James had a super famous brother. Anyone know who that brother is? Jesus. James was Jesus' brother. The interesting thing about James, um, and I didn't make this up. I'm kind of borrowing this from a famous pastor down in Georgia. Um, the interesting thing about James is that before like, Jesus died and, and was crucified and died and was raised and whatnot, before that, James wasn't someone who like, believed in his brother. He didn't believe in what his brother had to say about himself. He didn't follow his brother. In fact, it kind of seems like James thought his brother was a little crazy. So that when Jesus is dying on the cross, um, we don't know if James is there or not, but there's a really good chance wherever James was, he's got his head in his hands thinking, Jesus, what a waste. What, like, this guy, like, my brother, he's, he's dying up there for nothing. He's, he's insane. The fact, though, that James wrote a book afterwards, and we know about James from a different book in the Bible. Um, we don't know how exactly, but it's clear. Jesus, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus must have appeared to James and must have um, convinced James that like all that stuff I said about myself, it's true. And you know how like you saw me die and you heard I died? Well, I'm alive. And in fact, I am now Lord of the world. And in fact, I am God. I am divine. Now, I don't know if you have a brother or if you are a brother, but <laughs> Imagine what it would take for you or for your brother to convince you that he was God, right? Whatever Jesus had to say or do, um, Jesus did it and said it. So James, James is, worth, James is worth listening to. James wrote this letter um, to a group of people probably just like us, people who are trying to figure out life, who are trying to figure out God and faith, People who all, all are, are, are facing change. There's something coming for them that they're facing as well. And so James wrote this book to them, and we're going to listen to it. We're really only going to pay attention to four verses. Right out of the first chapter, four verses. And we're going to actually start um, with the very ending of those four verses. He says, basically, um, like all this stuff in those four verses. And at the end of it, he says, this is what he says. He says, Whoever does these things, whoever does these things, they will be blessed. They will be blessed in what they do. Now, without even knowing exactly what he means by blessed, isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be, don't you want to be blessed in what you do? In whatever's coming, whatever's facing us, whatever you do, you want to be blessed. The word for blessed there, it's a word that kind of gets a bad rap. I think, for us. Um, for one thing, it becomes a very churchy word, and people say it all the time, and we're not quite clear about what that means. The other reason it gets a bad rap is because of, like, those famous kind of, like, TV guys, right? The TV preachers who say, like, you know, send us your $50, send us your $100, and you will find blessings, right? You'll be blessed financially. You'll be blessed with your health, right? Health and wealth and prosperity, all these kinds of things. There's a really good chance, like, definitely, when James used the word blessed, that's not what he means by that. What he means is kind of the way his big brother used the word. When Jesus um, taught his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, 
it opened, and you might remember this from a few, like, actually like a year and a half ago. We did a whole series on this. You might remember he opens it by saying, blessed are you, blessed are you. And it's not people who are wealthy and healthy and prosperous. It's things like blessed are uh, the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the lowly. Blessed are the persecuted. That's what he means by blessed. Like, blessed are these, these, these lowly, difficult things, not health and wealth and prosperity. One of the problems, one of the troubles that we get ourselves into is that we think what it means to be blessed is to get the health and the wealth and for all the lights to be green, right? And to get the parking spot when you show up at the thing that's crowded. That's not what it means to be blessed. In Jesus' mind, in James' mind, what it means to be blessed, listen, is to be good, even though the things around you aren't good. To be okay because of what you believe about God, because you trust in God, um, and, and, and God makes you okay, even though the things around you aren't okay. So imagine life is something like a storm, and you can see the storm coming, and you're sure the storm is going to damage you. It's going to damage your house. To be blessed means you're going to be okay, even though, even though the storm is hitting. And that's, I think, what we really want. Obviously, we want the health and the wealth, and we want the green lights, and we want the traffic spot. Um, parking space. That's what we want, but that's not what we need. What we need is to be good, in spite of the fact that things aren't good around us. Because when change comes, it might not be good change, but you want to be blessed in it, um, even though it didn't go your way. So here is how James starts out this section. Listen to what he writes. He says, do not merely listen to the word. We're going to take this kind of piece by piece. The word up there, what he's talking about is God's word. God's word as we read in scripture in the Bible. In those days, they didn't have the Bible like we have it. There was no New Testament. James was literally writing the New Testament as this was happening. So there was no New Testament at that time. All there was was the Old Testament, which is the Jewish scriptures. Um, in those days, they didn't have physical copies of the Bible. There was no printing press. The only way to get a Jewish scriptures. Uh, a Bible back then, was if you had like a person or a number of people like writing the whole thing out. So as you can imagine, people didn't have Bibles. You couldn't really read one. The only people who had them were, you know, temples and synagogues and libraries and things like that. And so you didn't read the Bible like we read it today. You didn't have it on your phone like we all have it on our phone. You, you couldn't get a free Bible at the welcome desk at the synagogue. Um, you had to go and you had to listen. You had to listen to the word. And so for us, we listen to the word when you come to church or when you listen to someone speak about Jesus and all that sort of stuff. Like, you listen to the word. But for us, we also read. We read the word. We hear the word through a bunch of different ways. For them, they listen. The key word, though, is not word, nor is it listen or hear or read or anything. The key word up there is merely. Merely listen to the word. Merely implies that something is missing, something crucial, something vital is missing. And if it's missing, look at what James says. We so deceive ourselves. If we merely listen, we deceive ourselves. We're fooling ourselves if we think that merely listening, merely reading, merely hearing is going to make the difference. And there are a few ways that this shows up for us, like in our real lives. The first one, 
the first one, and um, if you're someone who has the year of the Bible card maybe, and you have it tucked in your Bible, or you have it on your phone, and you're reading that every day, um, there's an experience that we can have uh, as people who are trying to do this when we read the Bible, where we read it, and maybe something we're reading, it hits us, uh, and it, it inspires us, it challenges us, makes us feel good, right? Maybe you're not someone who's even there yet, but just the very fact that you got up that morning and read the Bible, that's the thing that makes you feel good, right? Um, you, you, know, you put your pot of coffee on, you sat up the window, you read your Bible, you feel good about that, that fact that you actually read that thing. Um, and then you get up, you get dressed, you go about your day feeling good, feeling challenged, feeling inspired by what you read that morning. But if that's where it ends, we deceive ourselves. The second kind of way that this shows up um, is, by the, is sort of in the experience that we have of coming to things like church. You come on a Sunday morning, and you're singing the songs, and the songs are great, and the songs are inspiring, and you're praying along with the prayer, and that's great, and it's inspiring, and you hear um, the sermon. And there's a certain point in the sermon where it feels like the preacher is just connecting with you, and you feel good in here. You feel like you're experiencing God in some way, or you feel convicted deep in your heart, or you feel challenged, or you feel inspired because of what you hear uh, on a Sunday. Or maybe you don't feel that so much here, but you actually listen to other pastors, other preachers like online on podcasts and YouTube and all that sort of stuff. Um, And you listen to those, you watch them, other speakers, and you think, oh my gosh, wow, this is it. You feel like they're speaking right to you, even though they're, you know, halfway across the country, right? Or maybe you're someone who reads Christian books, that sort of thing. And you have this experience where you sit there and you read it and you say to yourself, oh my gosh, this author knows what it's like to be me. This is, this is where it is. This is, what it, this is what it all feels. And then you go about your day. You leave just feeling good, feeling different, feeling changed maybe, feeling inspired. But if that's where it ends, James says... If that's where it ends, we deceive ourselves. Merely listening, reading, being moved, it doesn't get the job done. What does get the job done? He says it. Do what it says. We do what it says. Merely listening, merely reading, merely hearing, it's not enough. In fact, it's not really anything but deceiving ourselves if we're not also doing what it says. But what happens For us as Christians, it happens in a lot of churches, in a lot of places, is you come on a Sunday morning, or you listen to the guy on YouTube, or you read the book, and you feel the feels, right? You feel good. You feel inspired. You feel like the pastor, like the preacher just is in your heart. He gets you. You feel convicted. You feel challenged. And when we feel that, we think that is the religious experience that we're meant to have. That's what it is. That's not the religious experience we're meant to have. Doing what it says is the religious experience we think. But what happens is we get fooled. We hear something great. We walk out of here and we go about our day and we forget what we heard. And we are just deceiving ourselves if we think that if we think that, that um, is anything. The goal isn't to feel convicted or to feel inspired or to feel challenged or to feel good. It's to do convicted things. It's to do inspired things. It's to do things that you're challenged to do. It's to do the good that you feel. 
Otherwise, we're deceiving ourselves, thinking we're having these religious experiences when all we're really doing is we're feeling something. Listen to how James puts it, because this image is super helpful for us getting it. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, you might be different than me. This might come as a shock to you. Um, Based on all the precision I have going on up here, I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. Might come as a shock to you. Um, But even I, this image isn't totally lost on me. Even I get this, and I bet you do too. You look in the mirror in the morning, and you say to yourself, oh my gosh, this isn't working. (laughs) Right? Um, You're going to do something to try to make it better, right? You're going to comb your hair. You're going to put your hair up. You're going to put a hat on at least, right? Um, Maybe you're going to get the makeup brush thing out and do the thing with the thing and the thing. don't know, it's really out of my element. Um, but like, you're going to do that kind of thing to make it seem like it's okay, right? Um, if you have a pimple, you're going to... No. Over the line. Um, <laughs> the point is, though, you're not going to look at yourself in the mirror and say, if this ain't working, meh, what am I going to do about it? Let me just go about my day. You're going to do what you can. You're going to do what you can to fix it right? If James is right, and I think James is right, when we hear the word and merely hear it, merely listen to it, merely feel it, it's like we look into the mirror, we say, nothing we can do about this, and we go about our day. And I bet you don't do that with your looks, but I bet you do do that with your life and with following Jesus and doing what he says for you to do. Listen, if this is what you do, if this is your pattern for going about life, no wonder things don't change for you. No wonder things don't get better. No wonder you're still struggling with the things that, you're, that you've been struggling with the last time you were all bummed that you were struggling about it, and you're struggling with them too. Where this connects with change, where this connects with what's next, is that You will hear what you need to do now to make it so that you could do better later. But you will be tempted still to say, well, I don't have to actually do it now. I can just wait. I can just wait and do it later. If this is your pattern of doing things, of seeing something, of seeing something wrong and not doing anything about it now, that's not going to change when the change comes and life is more stressful. Because when stress comes, when hard things come, that's not the time for us to be changing our patterns, changing our habits, changing our things on the fly. If you see something, do something now, because a later might be too late. That was my experience my freshman year in high school, um, in college. And here's how this might go for you, right? Once I get the job I want, then I'll be organized. Then I'll go to bed on time. Then I won't play video games until 3 in the morning. But what happens is you get the job, you're still disorganized, you're still playing video games, you wake up super tired, and you lose the job, right? Once we have the baby, then we'll learn how to budget and manage our money. Because we hear that having kids costs money. But once we have it, then we'll learn to be careful with our money and not just spend willy-nilly. It doesn't work like that. Once the baby's old enough to realize, then I'll get my drinking under control. 
then I'll take care of that. I don't need to do it now, but once the baby's old enough, then I'll take That's not going to work like that. Once the second kid arrives, once the third kid arrives, and things are insane, then I'll learn how to build a stronger marriage. That's not the time to do that. Once I meet the right guy, the right girl, then I'll, I'll make sexually responsible and pure decisions. But until then, nah, I don't need to worry about that. I'll do it then. Once I have myself figured out, then I'll volunteer at church. Once I make enough money, then I'll be able to give generously and give regularly. Once this, this, and this happens, then I'll be the person I need to be. But it just doesn't work like that. Do it now. Do it now instead so that when then comes, and then is harder than you expect it to be, you'll be able to do it better then. Look at how James continues, and this is a little nuanced, but I think you'll get this. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, uh, there it is. They will be blessed in what they do. Whoever does this, whoever looks into that law and does what it says will be blessed. Now, what does this mean? Um, it's kind of hard to boil it all down, but really, like, the essence, the essence of what it means is um, doing what Jesus says for you to do. That's what the perfect law that gives freedom. Doing what God says for you to do. It not only gives freedom, but in the doing of it, whatever God says for you to do, you will be blessed in what you do. And what does, what does Jesus say for us to do? Um, well, he said a lot of things. But when it comes to like the law and what we are to do, if you remember, Jesus sort of boils down the entire law. All the Old Testament stuff, all that, he boils it down into two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. If you do that, perfect law gives freedom. And then Jesus kind of boils it down even further. And says, if you can love one another in the way that I have loved you, that's the perfect law. That's, that's, that's the commandment. That's what you need to do. Um, that's what it looks like. And then Jesus didn't just say it, then he showed it. Because hours later, he went to the cross and he died for those people who he was talking to. Um, that's the perfect law that gives freedom. If you do that, you will experience freedom. Like what you haven't expected. And it's a different kind of law. When we think about the law, um, we think of things that restrict our freedom, right? We think about, I want to drive 100 miles an hour on the parkway to get to where I'm going, but there's a law that says I can't do that, right? And that law restricts my freedom to go and to do that. Um, this is a different kind of law. Following God's law, following Jesus' law, doesn't restrict our freedom. It gives us freedom. And part of the law, here's how part of the law goes. Uh, in that Sermon on the Mount that I talked about earlier, Jesus says things like this. He says things like, hey, don't cheat on your wife. In fact, don't even look at another woman with lust in that way. Don't check out that woman one more time. Turn your computer off. Uh, does that restrict freedom? Well, kind of. It restricts your freedom um, to be consumed with lust and to make a really huge mistake. But in doing that, in listening to Jesus, you will find a freedom from those things like you wouldn't believe if you just listen to it. And you'll be blessed in it when you do that. So now, before you have the wife to cheat on, now's the time to learn how to not do that kind of stuff. Jesus said things like, sell what you have and give the money to people who need it. Be generous. 
give it away before what you own ends up owning you. Does that restrict freedom? Kind of. It restricts our freedom to have the nicest thing, to have the best house on the block or the nicest car in the parking lot. But what you'll find if you listen to what Jesus says is a freedom from um, the lore of wealth, from the lore of things, from money, from consumption, from being consumed by those things, from the anxiety that goes along with it. And you'll be blessed not in consuming or hoarding wealth, but in giving it away. It's one of the reasons why um, a few months ago we had that, that, that message on giving. And remember we said to like take 100% of your income and divide it up 10, 10, and 80. And like the first 10%, that's the 10%. The first 10%, that's the 10% you give away. The second 10%, that's the 10% you save. And then you live on 80. Does that restrict your freedom? You bet it does. It restricts your freedom to live outside of your means. And if you learn to live like that, you will be blessed with financial freedom. You'll be blessed with giving faithfully, with saving faithfully, with living faithfully. Jesus said things like, don't retaliate, don't hit back, don't punch back. Instead, I want you to forgive your enemies. Does that restrict freedom? It definitely does. It, it restricts you from feeling good about getting that last hit in, about getting the last word, the last punch. But doing what Jesus says here frees you from the weight of unforgiveness. It frees you um, from the weight of having the grudge. It frees you from the weight of your heart and your inside getting dark because of all that stuff swirling around. Jesus said a lot of things like that, a lot of things like that. And then at the very end of this Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of it, uh, Here's how, you, here's how you live, here's how you don't live, here's what you avoid, here's what to do. At the very end of it, this is what he says. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice and does them is like a wise man who built his house, who built his house on the rock. And if you don't know the rest of it, here's how it goes. The wise man who built his house on the rock, the storm came, the rain came, the floods flood, the wind beats against the house. And the house stands in the storm because it was built on the foundation of doing what Jesus had to say. Jesus then says, the same man who didn't build on that foundation, who, who heard this stuff and merely listened, didn't put it into practice, you know what happened for him? The rain came, the floods flood, the wind beat against the house, and the house fell apart because it was built on sand. You think the sand is strong. When everything is good, it looks good. It looks strong. But when change comes, when the weather changes, when stress hits, it turns that sand into a, like a mush and the house will fall apart. When we don't do what he says, when we merely listen, we deceive ourselves thinking that we're building something that will last. And the truth is it will not last. And so the question the question that this asks, that Jesus asks in this, and that I'm asking you now, is what is your house built on? When the storm comes and hits, will it stand or will it fall? What you do now matters for how you will do later. So the way to face change, to prepare for the change that's facing you, is to do what Jesus calls for you to do now. 
And that will bear fruit later. In this time, this day, this season, do it so that in the next season, in the next day, in the future, you will be able to do whatever he calls you to do and you will be blessed in doing it. If you have practiced it, if you have put it into practice now, it will work then. If you train for the marathon now, you will be able to run it then. If you learn to study now, you will do well later. And so the takeaway, the question that I want to ask all of you um, is what, what are you doing now? Where you're saying to yourself, well, once this happens, then this. If this happens, then I'll be able to do that. Once this, then what are you saying to yourself? What are you not doing now? that Jesus calls you to do now, that you're saying to yourself, I'll do it later. Giving? Meh, I'll do it when I make more money. I'll do it when I can get my schedule, my, my budget together. Serving? I'll do it when my job changes and I have time and whatnot. Do it now. Um, forgiveness? Reconciling with your brother or your sister who's hurt you or who you hurt? Meh. I'll do it when I have more emotional, I'll do it when I have time. Getting the help you need to clean your heart, to clean your soul, ah, I'll do it when I have energy. Do it now. Working on your relationship with God, getting serious about following Jesus, meh, I'll do it when the crisis comes, when I need that. But that's down the road. I don't need that. Do it now. Because in the midst of the storm, that is not the time to be building on a different foundation. Build on the foundation when things are okay, before the change comes that's facing you. Now is the time. If you do it now, you will be blessed later, and you will be able to just face it, to face the change that's facing you with strength, with courage, with stability, on a foundation that you know can endure because Jesus is the one who's building it with you. Do it now. Be blessed later. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, which gives us amazing wisdom, but we don't want to just hear it. We don't want to merely listen to it. We don't want to just feel it. We don't want to be in awe of it. We don't want to be convicted or, or, or challenged or inspired by, by it, but we want to be people who do what it says. We pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, when we hear things that are convicting and challenging and inspiring, that make us feel good, that make us awe, like just feel in awe, we pray, God, that you would work in us to make it so that that actually carries out into real action in our lives, so that we do it. God, we need your spirit, we need your strength, we need your courage to be able to do that. And so we ask that you would give that to each of us, no matter what we're facing, no matter what the thing is in our heart, in our mind, that we know we're putting off. We pray that you would help us to do it now so that we will be prepared to do better later. Lord, you know that there is change facing us. Good change or bad change. Um, something we're looking forward to or something we're really afraid of, we're dreading. A storm that might be coming. We ask you, God, that you would... Uh, Right now, help us to build on a foundation that lasts. Help us to do the words that you're saying. Help us to do it. Make it so that our houses will stand, and that we'll stand strong. Make it so that in the midst of the storm, our faith, who we are, our witness, will shine brightly 
in a world that is just uh, in need of your light. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. Amen.